The reading this morning is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that house who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You know, did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Good morning. If I can stretch your memory all the way back to, to last Sunday, uh, we were looking at God's good plan for humanity. And we saw that God, his best plan that he has for us is salvation. And the way that he's bringing that through is, is through his son, the Messiah, who forgives us of sins. And thirdly, we saw that the way that we are to respond to this message is through repentance and baptism. This week, what we're going to be looking at is a woman who has received the salvation plan of God. And what does that look like? Uh, so we're going to split this, uh, these verses up into four, four sections. Uh, we're going to examine the heart of the, of the Pharisee, and we're going to look at that in 36 to 40. We're going to examine the heart of God and his yearning for forgiveness, that's 41 to 43. Examine the heart of the woman and her love. And then 48 to 50, it will be a kind of an examination of self or our own hearts. Now, the sermon is titled, A Heart That's Received, because the main text is focused on a sinful woman whose heart has been transformed by the forgiveness of God. And all she can do in response to this forgiveness is pour her life out in love for her God. Now the goal this morning is that our hearts might be examined before the Lord, as Jesus is going to examine the Pharisee and the lady. And I have two questions for you this morning uh, to start us with. Uh, what is the reason for why you came to Jesus, if you can remember that far back? 
And secondly, why are you still following the Lord? And those are two questions that I want to look at. And by examining our hearts, I mean the motivation or the desire that we have. Uh, It's a pretty big text this morning, so we're going to pray and move into it. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love. Lord, thank you um, that forgiveness is on offer. God, humble us like the lady in this picture to come to your feet. Lord, to live by faith that you have forgiven us of our sins and made us right before you. In your name, amen. So to begin, we're going to be looking at the Pharisee. Most of us, when we, when we read the word Pharisee in our Bibles, if you've grown up in churches, we just look at that and we think, well, that's the bad judgy man that everyone talks about. And we don't like to be called a Pharisee when we're a Christian because we know that what you're saying to us is you're judgmental. What exactly is a Pharisee? Because they are actually a lot like Christians in a lot of ways. Pharisee, the word, it just means to separate or to make distinguished. And they were a religious sect born out of Judaism because what had happened was when the Greeks and the Romans took authority over the Jews, they were scared that monotheism and their worship of God was going to be, become malpractice because it was going to be kind of getting paganized through the foreign nations. And so they had a real passion to remain holy and pure to God. They wanted to remain separate from the pagan practices in the world. They had a very deep passion to remain holy and unblemished before God. Holiness, just so we can talk about this really briefly, holiness has two aspects to it. The first aspect of holiness means to be completely separate or apart. When we say that God is holy, God is completely other from his creation. He is not creation. This isn't pantheism. He is completely other. He made creation. He is completely other. When we use it of people, there are holy people. God sets people apart for himself. The Jews were those people set apart for him. And there's another form of holiness, which means purity without blemish, not corrupt. There's no sin. When we say we worship a holy God, he is pure, he is good. There is no malintent in him, no sin. When we say this of holy people, we mean holy people that are purified by the Lord or we mean people that are, they're upright kind of people. And that's the way holiness can be used. And so the Pharisees understood themselves to be holy people. They were set apart by God to be pure and they lived in a pagan world and they also believed that they were the holy priests that were to show people this holy God that had saved them. That's what they believed, and that's what they believed they were doing, and they did this through obedience to God's word and through teaching others to do likewise. And to really just to boil this all down to the Christian principle, they're learning how to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus commands us to do this, be in the world, but do not be of the world. That's Pharisee motivation. And when you get to something like Peter, where he would say, We are a holy people. That is, we're a set-apart people and a royal priesthood. We are set apart by God to show the world this holy and good God. That's what we're to do. And even Peter will elaborate on that theme and he says, and because you are a holy people of God, do not give yourself in 
to the sinful ways of the world. Don't become like the people around you. And so all of a sudden, the Pharisee kind of lifestyle looks exactly like the Christian kind of lifestyle. And I tell you this because I don't want you to just sit there and think, bad, judgy man. They were actually very zealous for God and his holiness and remain holy. And that's a very good motivation to have. In fact, they were so motivated that a lot of us Christians don't even think remotely like they do. But as Paul will say, that their passion to follow God in this kind of holiness is misguided. And Jesus is going to show Simon the Pharisee in our verses this morning how it is misguided. The Pharisee in the story, it's a natural progression from what we saw last week. Jesus rebukes those who will not accept his testimony and John's testimony. And one of the people that are labeled that don't accept his message is Pharisees. And this Pharisee, he at least decides to engage with Jesus and his teachings. We don't know the exact intent for why he had him over, but he is very critical of Jesus' ministry and how he decides to do things. Jesus happily goes with him into his house. And if you enter the house of an important person like this guy back then, you had a courtyard in your house and there was these chairs or the way that they liked to relax was more on like what we would call a day bed and they were sitting around in a circle in a table and there'd be food presented if a rabbi was to come over and it was quite common practice as you were sitting there and someone important was in your house that town folk could come in and they could listen to the rabbi because there's pearls of wisdom kind of being spoken that's why the pharisees not all spooked and weirded out when this woman from town struts into the house But here she is in all her glory, and the first thing that Luke wants us to know about her is she's a terrible sinner. This is what defines this woman. And not only so is she such a terrible sinner, but the whole town knows about it. It's public. A lot of theologians are guessing that she's probably a prostitute. But whatever it might be, she is someone that you look at and think you're despicable. And everyone knows it. And her sin is what defines her. And yet upon hearing about Jesus' location in the town, she goes and grabs her alabaster jar full of perfume, which we know from other stories is expensive. She stands behind Jesus' feet as he reclines on this bed. And she begins to cry as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisee and pour perfume on his feet and use her hair to wipe them. The task of cleaning feet in an honor-shame society was a job given to the low. You didn't even make your servant wash your feet, you made the slave do it if you were going to get someone to do it at all, because it was quite disgusting work. And yet this woman is using her hair. And Paul tells us in Corinthians that a woman's hair is like the glory of her. It is the beautifying part, the crown, so to speak, of the woman. And she uses this crown, if I can use that kind of language, like a dirty rag that you keep outside your house to kind of wipe off your shoes before you go in. And not only so, but she sits there and she kisses Jesus' feet with her lips and pours out costly perfume upon them. Now, if you're a Pharisee witnessing, this is gross. Right? 
Your whole life you are trying to remain pure. You don't touch things that are disgusting. You don't touch dead things. You don't touch poop or things like that. And when you're walking around on those streets where there's donkeys and horses and everything else, I imagine it was pretty gross work. You don't rub your heads willy-nilly like a pig in a sty. And yet here she is. And we don't even do this kind of thing. It's not because of purity rites that are religious. It's just basic hygiene principles, you know, when you get sick. But what I really want to note about the Pharisee and what he finds so disgusting, it's not that she's doing this. He finds her disgusting. She's rubbing her hair on his feet and he's like, yuck, how dare you let this woman touch your feet? I was trying to put this in context of how much this man must despise this woman. I couldn't actually think of anything. Singing, I made up a job. I don't know if this is a job. If you're a, say someone was given the job that you don't like at all, and their job was just to clean septic tanks. And the way that they had to do it was they had to do the whole thing with a brush. And they're sitting there in their pit, brushing the walls of this septic tank. And you look at them and you just think, even this job's too good for you. You, should, you are lower than this job. So it's a kind of despising or the critical nature or the judgment that this man holds for this woman. And we've got to ask, where does this kind of mentality come from? And it's quite simple. We believe we're better than other people. That's it. We think we are better than other people. The biblical term is we believe that we're holier than them. Somehow we're less blemished or less stained. You see, what we do is when someone sins or does something horrible in a way that we're not prone to do ourselves, because that's not kind of our vice or whatever it might be, we look at that person and we think, I mean, I've got my things, but I do not do that. That's disgusting, don't we? That's what we do. Oh, I've got my things. But man, I'm glad I'm not like them. We believe we're better. All people possess this kind of critical nature when we start to analyze ourselves against others. Everyone does this. But there's a special kind of form of judgmentalism that belongs to the religious, to us. It's when we like to classify ourselves as better in the eyes of God. I'm better than this person in the eyes of God. And we see that this is most aggressive in a lot of Christianity based on our morality and our ethics. We are more holier than thou. And so we become very judgmental of people who are doing things worse than us. But it doesn't even really have to be that big. I was thinking about how petty it can be and maybe I'm showing the pettiness of my own mind here. But sometimes we can be getting a real good streak up on our Bible app, right? Or we're reading our Bibles consistently. We're praying early in the morning like we promised we would for six months and we finally get around to doing it. And we've been doing that well for, for a couple of weeks. And then we start to think, wow, like, I'm doing really, really good. And someone comes along and they share their struggle with you and you think, oh, I'm a bit above that. 
And it can be such a petty behavior, such a petty thought, such a petty criticism. And what we've started to do is we've started to use Christianity like I've got something good going on and it places me above the rest. And this can become such a large problem inside Christianity that what we start to think is, do we really need to worry about holiness at all? Isn't Jesus just all about love? And so how do these two things work together? And you see the the logic, if pursuing holiness or holy living is just going to end up with me having a judgmental or critical attitude towards others, isn't it better just to forget it and, and just love everyone? We feel this tension. For instance, you could go to the water cooler or wherever it is that you go at work, right? And all the hot goss is being spilt in your office. And you start to wonder, do I sit here and, and listen? Does this make me a part of it? Do I leave? I want, to, I want to be loving and I want to stay, but I also don't want to engage in the conversation. How do I love them but remain? When all the boys after the tools go out to the pub and you're sitting there and you're thinking, do I drink and do I do, I do that? Do I engage in the conversations when they're talking about all the pretty ladies or, or do I reserve myself? How do I show them that I love them but, but not engage? When you're watching a movie with your family and your friends and you know it's not good, do I just pretend to fall asleep on the couch, right? <laughs> so I don't have to be a part of it or do I say, well, we probably need to switch this one off. And we have strains in our life all the time like this. Am I doing something wrong? And how do I love the person when this is kind of in my mind? Holiness and love, can they go together? And yes, they can. In fact, they actually can't be separated. Because our God is a holy and a loving God. He does not blemish himself. He does not tarnish himself to love us. And in his holiness... He does not condemn us, but in his holy and pure love, he offers forgiveness. And here becomes this distinctive difference between a Christian and a Pharisee that you can see on the slides. A Pharisee would argue that observance or obedience to the law is what makes you holy before God, pure. And Jesus says that it is actually God who makes you holy, and obedience is just something that flows out of your love and response to God. That is why Jesus will say, the one who loves me will keep my commands. And I want to provide just a a quick example of this out of the Old Testament. In Exodus 31, Moses just finishes up his stint of 40 days on Mount Sinai. And God has given him all the laws, all the bylaws. He's told him, this is how you're going to make the tabernacle holy. Here's how you're going to make the priest's robes holy. Here's how you're going to make the priest holy. Here's how you're going to make utensils and all this stuff. And all this stuff that you make, it's going to be holy to me. And he goes, and I've elected men to make all this stuff. They're going to stitch the robes. They're going to do all the utensils and all this other kind of mumbo jumbo. And as he's handing the commandments over to Moses... Before any obedience, before any observance of the law has taken place, this is what he says to Moses as he's handing it over, before he walks back down. You must observe the Sabbath, for it is a sign between me and you for all generations 
that you will know that the Lord makes you holy. Work you can do for six days, but seventh day rest, because it is a holy day to the Lord. You were commanded to take a day off work to rest as a sign to remember that your work does not make you right before God, that nothing you do makes you holy, that it is God who makes you holy. It's a sign. The moment our faith starts to think that somehow my obedience to God is what makes me pure or good in His sight, that it has any credibility, is the time in which we need to repent to think that our good things that we do are somehow making us right before God. Furthermore, when we do this, it leads to a self-righteous attitude that condemns others because what we start to do is we start to look at them and judge them according to the standard that we are living. And this is how we become the Pharisee. So, to make sure that we're not becoming the Pharisee, does it mean we don't concern ourselves with holiness? Not at all. We are deeply concerned for these things. But we remember who makes us holy. It is God and it is not ourselves. He does the work. Which now leads into the second section of the text where Jesus teaches Simon how God makes someone holy in his sight. You see, after the woman is touching Jesus' feet, the Pharisee doesn't like that very much and he mutters to himself or to those who are sitting around. And, and Jesus is provoked to, to teach Simon some theology. And he says to him, a creditor has two debtors, one who owed 500 and the other 50. And since they couldn't pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? You see, two people, they're in the exact same circumstance. Both are in need and they can't pay it back. Now a denarius is about a day's wage, so one guy's about a year and a half in. And the other guy, well, he's just over a month. Both of them aren't really good spots to be in. But Jesus will reveal that it's not actually the amount that's so concerning that is the focus point, but the predicament is, is that both of them are unable to pay it back. You see, there comes a point in a debt where if you were to say, Steve, you owe me 50 million or you owe me 50 billion, I don't care which one you give me because guess what? I ain't going to pay either of them back because I just don't got the cash. Both debtors owe the person. Both cannot pay it back. Both are dependent to be forgiven. It comes at the same price. Him sacrificing his situation to make sure that both can be forgiven. Then Jesus provokes Simon to answer him. Which one will love him more? Now logic prevails. The one with greater debt. And Jesus affirms his response. So what is Jesus doing? Well, he's teaching Simon, the Pharisee, whether or not you've lived a better life, all have a sin debt before God. And it's all owing and you can't pay it off. You see, many of us think the question is, have I been good enough for God? When the question really is, am I holy before God? That's what it must be. Holiness, perfect, pure. Am I holy before God? And the answer to that question is obvious. We all only have to sit there for two seconds and go, 
No, I am not holy before God. And this is what he's trying to show with the teaching. You see, even if it were possible for you to walk outside these church doors today and you never sinned again, you're blemished. You remain blemished with all your sins, even if perfection were to walk for the rest of your lives now. Because your good works can't undo what we've done. And this is examining the heart of God in this text. In God's perfect holiness, he will not abide with sin. There are no sinners in heaven, there are only saints in heaven. It's perfection. But in his perfect love, he doesn't forsake sinners. So in his holiness, God through his son becomes sin for us so that we might be pure. It's by the way of forgiveness on the cross that we are made holy, that we are made without blemish. It is his work and not our own. The second thing that this teaching does that Jesus gives the Pharisee is it interprets what's happening. The Pharisee doesn't really understand this woman and why she's doing what she's doing. But through this teaching, we learn about what is happening. And Jesus uses this as an example to examine the woman's heart. And I want you to note, Luke takes like a really good amount of time here. I really like the way Luke writes this story. Jesus has cast his eyes at Simon to teach the parable. And then he takes his eyes and he puts them back onto the woman and to talk about what the woman is doing. He's looking at her, but he's talking to Simon. And at the same time as he is speaking, his words accompanying this sinner who is repenting at his feet and it is completely cutting the pride in half of the Pharisee who is stubborn. And I think if there were ever a graphic picture of God showing favor to the humble and rebuking the proud, this would be it. Jesus makes three comparisons between Simon and the lady. You see, it was good manners that when you had a guest over, what you would do when they walked in the door is you would kiss them upon the cheek as a sign of friendship. You are, you are welcome, you are received into my home. And then before they got up onto their little recliner, you would give them a bowl of, of cool water so that they could clean their feet off, so that they'd be cool and be comfortable, and then they sat up on the couch with you. And then after that, you would put some oil or something on their head because it was just a sweeter aroma than the constant hot day that you're walking through. It'd kind of be similar if you went over to someone's house and you just say, hey, you want a coffee, tea, some water, maybe something out of my fridge, whatever it is that you do to be polite. And Jesus points to Simon and he says, you show that you have no love for me. In fact, you offer a better courtesy to a stranger walking into your house than you offer me. You call me rabbi, but you treat me more like a peasant. And then Jesus says, but look at the woman. She uses her tears and her hair like water and rags. She greets me like a slave. You offer me no oil for my head, which is a common product. She has poured out the very best that she has got, not for my head, but she applies it to my feet. 
I'm worthy, even this part of me, of her highest adoration. And you kiss me with no friendship upon the cheek, but this woman is still kissing my feet because she knows what it means to be friends with God. And Jesus points out that the love of the woman, or the love that the woman has, it's because of the forgiveness God has given to her. This is a heart transformed by God. This is what you're looking at. Her debt is unpayable, and she knows that full well, and she grieves immensely. Yet her debt is forgiven, and she knows this too, and she loves the Lord for it. You see, love for God, a desire and a motivation to want to love God, that is a response to a heart that knows the forgiveness of God. Jesus isn't teaching Simon love God more. That would actually be making the problem worse. He's teaching Simon that it's the forgiveness of sins that God gives that spurs one on to love the Lord. We must accept his love. Simon won't accept Jesus. And I ask, are you weary from following Jesus? Because maybe you've been doing it in vain, right? If following Jesus is being done to try and be holy and acceptable in the sight of God, like somehow your efforts are doing that, then it does not surprise me that you get tired and that perhaps you even resent God. Instead, I encourage you, find rest that you are made holy through the forgiveness of God. God did that work for you on the cross. There's no striving to be done. There is only rest in the forgiveness that finds itself in an overflow of love to God. And if you do not come to Jesus the way that this woman comes to Jesus, and instead all you're doing is just kind of having Jesus like the little buddy, like the Pharisee, then it comes as no surprise that we might not love God much. Because all we're trying to do, like the Pharisee, is prove to Jesus how holy we are. Look, Jesus, look at all this stuff that I've done, Jesus. That isn't what Jesus is looking for. And the end statement he gives him is a slap in the face, but the one who is forgiven little loves much, uh, loves little, sorry. The one who owed 50 denarii was forgiven little when in comparison to 500. See, when you compare the two against each other, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a massive amount. But the same forgiveness is applied to both. Just as the same blood must be spilt for the prostitute, the same blood of Jesus must be spilt for the Apostle Peter or the Mother Mary. It's the same forgiveness. And that's the point. No one is forgiven little. All are forgiven much. Some only believe it's a little because they think much of themselves. You see, the Pharisee doesn't love God. He despises Jesus. And so do we when we think forgiveness is only little because it always comes at the price of sacrificing the Son of God. You know, it saddens me when I hear Christians who grew up in Christian families such as myself 
We say, my salvation story isn't that grand because my life just really isn't that offensive. It's essentially what you're saying. You're comparing yourself to someone else and saying, well, I don't really need that much forgiveness for my life. But did you know your sins require just as much forgiveness as the person that has the story in the gutter? That it came at the exact same cost. Have you reckoned with the fact that maybe you have been really good your whole life, but your sins condemn you unless you come to Christ? You see, it's not about is my life better or worse, comparatively speaking against someone else. It's about my sins before a holy God. She loves because she is well aware of her sins before Jesus. But she loves much because she finds forgiveness. Have you reckoned with the fact that you are condemned in your sins? And no matter how good you might think that you are, you need the forgiveness of him. Which brings me to the last little section of 48 through to 49, examining our own hearts. Jesus said to her, your sins, they're forgiven. Those reclining with Jesus and eating with him, they start to grumble again. Who is this that can even forgive sins? And we're going to look at two reactions. The first one's the self-righteous, and then the second one's the woman. After Jesus forgives the woman her sins, the self-righteous, of course, they're offended. They're offended at Jesus because this sinful woman is touching him because he's meant to be a holy one, a holy prophet. And they're offended now because Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. And we've got to stop and ask, does it offend us? Does it offend us? Does it offend you that a woman like this can find forgiveness? And we say no because it's just a beautiful picture of a sinner. Does it offend you that there is a woman, maybe she is a prostitute, that there are people in the kingdom of God who have given their bodies over to other people and that's the way they make their living. Does it offend us that there are men like Abraham and David in the kingdom that God says they're holy in my sight, even though they were very powerful men and they coerced women into doing things that they shouldn't have done. But God says they're holy. Does it offend you that people like St. Paul, he abused people violently attacked them, killed Christians left, right, and center. And people who abuse people, God says, they're holy in my sight. Does it offend you that there are murderers and sex offenders and thieves and deviants and morally corrupt people in heaven? And that on the flip side, there are people that spend their whole lives loving their family, doing good things in the community, generally well spoken of, and they are not in the kingdom of heaven, that they are condemned. And all this only because the sinner repents when he comes to Jesus. Does it offend you?
The sacrifice of Jesus on a cross, the Son of God on a cross, is a testimony for eternity that nothing you do makes you holy before God. That that is the price that it takes to make you holy in the sight of God. Isaiah, when recognizing that the, uh, sorry, Isaiah, when recognizing the Messiah would come, he says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. This woman, she's not offended by Jesus and the idea that she's condemned in her sins because she knows she is. She sees so much beauty when Jesus walks into town and she cherishes the feet that brings the salvation message, she drops all that she's doing and expresses her deep love. You see, no one anymore calls her wicked. No one anymore calls her evil. No one anymore sees a crummy person of the street or a horrible blemished person. In the sight of God, she's called loved. She's called forgiven. She's called pure. Do we live by faith in the forgiveness of God? You see, when the lady heard about Jesus being in town, her faith was already showing. She was loving God for the forgiveness that she had received. But it isn't until actually after the act that Jesus actually proclaims to her, your sins are forgiven. And it's actually a really beautiful tension Luke puts in there. You and I, we live by faith that our sins are forgiven. Do we still grieve and do we still mourn over them? Yes, we do, and we still repent of them. But we live by faith that we are forgiven by the Lord that our sins are no longer held against us, that we are not condemned, that death does not reign over us. And the evidence of this faith is a life that's lived loving the Lord. That's the evidence of the faith in us. We give up our lives to embrace the forgiveness of God. And God says to all those that would come to him, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the first person, I'll just end here. She didn't come to be healed. She didn't come to have a demon removed. She didn't come to have a friend healed. She came to Jesus to have her sins forgiven. That's it. Is that why you have come? Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, Help us to see ourselves in light of you. Lord, that you are pure and good and holy. And Lord, that we are not. Help us to take our eyes off others, Lord, and to focus them on you. That we are deeply in need. And that you deeply love. And that you forgive us. Help us to cling to this message. Amen.